Well, our scripture reading this morning comes from Revelation chapter 21. We're reading from verse 9. We're on the last, the last, uh, this is the penultimate sermon, so there's only one to go. And I know some of you have been waiting for this day. Or, and we're going to delay the last sermon by a week, just to keep you hanging on to the very end. Uh, count your blessings. There was a Puritan minister who, at the beginning of his ministry, had a congregation in central London of about 4,000 people. And he started on day one at Job chapter 1, verse 1. And 40 years later, he finished the book of Job with 40 people who, who were described using the language of the book of Job as, quote, faint yet pursuing. Okay, I hope you've got your Bibles ready. Chapter 21, verse 9. We pick it up at verse 9. Let's hear the word of God. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a more most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great wall, high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations. And on them were written the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its walls, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. And I'm going to skip over the names of the jewels. You'll recognize them for yourself. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need for the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. These last two chapters are unique in the book of Revelation, as we began to see last time. 
In these last two chapters, you will find no bloodshed, no battles, no bad blood, and above all, no Babylon. Babylon, for those who have been coming regularly, is a code name given to this world system. This world system that delivers our goods and services, that provides our law and order, but also serves us with temptations and pressures that encourage us to compromise our witness. Babylon the whore is gone for good by the time we get to Revelation 21. And in her place is Jerusalem, the bride. John says, or the angel says, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. Old Jerusalem was built on a hilltop. But Isaiah and Micah both prophesied That in the latter days, the mountain of the house of the Lord would be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. Ezekiel, he talks about New Jerusalem as an exceedingly high mountain. Psalm 48 sees the holy city beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth. Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city Of the great king. Both Eden at the beginning and now Zion at the end of human history are high mountains and sacred spaces for the people of God. So, having said that, let's look together then at the three main vignettes in this passage before us today. First of all, there's the heavenly. Bride. The heavenly bride, of course, is the heavenly reality of which Babylon was the earthly travesty. She represents the holy society of the church. Here, not in the church's current condition, but then in its glorified state. And she represents not just the individual believer, nor the local church per se, but the church Catholic, that is, the church of the Old and the New Covenant, the church of raised, resurrected, and living saints, the church that is one body with Christ as its head, that is, its source and origin of its life. Here that church appears And she is complete, perfect, one general assembly of the people of God. That church was betrothed to Christ in eternity. Jesus refers to it in his high priestly prayer when he speaks of those that you gave to me before the foundation of the world. That church where its members individually were united to Christ by regeneration, that is, by the new birth, and by the effectual call of God by which they trusted in Christ for their salvation. They are united to Christ in time. And now in eternity, having been raised from spiritual death here, 
They have been raised from physical death and have been changed, transfigured, so that they are like unto the resurrected body of the Lord Jesus. Here they are all changed and glorified. She is the bride, the wife of the Lamb. She's been betrothed to God, and during the period of her earthly life, she has produced spiritual children by the preaching of the gospel. The church, as Paul says in Galatians, is our mother. She gives us birth by the word of truth, signified when she washes our face in baptism. Now the imagery then of the church as the bride goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible to Eve. Eve designates, or Adam rather, designates Eve the mother of all living. By that he meant not only those physically related to her as our first mother, but spiritually related to her since in the early chapters of Genesis it's Eve who is represented as the believer. She believes the promise of God that God gave to her that one of her offspring would be the serpent crusher. And so she names one of her children, is this the one? And so from the very beginning she is a believer. She believed the promise of the Messiah And she becomes the model that we find reproduced elsewhere in the Old Testament, where the daughters of Zion are the ones who are seeking the Lord. When everybody else is off doing their own thing, the daughters of Zion want to hear what the Lord is saying there in the Song of Solomon. She she represents the congregation of God. And there's another illusion that the early church fathers noted. Just as Eve was taken from Adam's side, you remember. Uh, Matthew Henry, the Puritan commentator, says, you notice, not from his head to be over him, not from his feet to be under him, not from his hands simply to be his implement, but from his side to be with him as his companion and as his better half. (laughs) Uh, I added that bit. The last phrase. But just as Eve is taken from Adam's side, so the bride of Christ, the church, is taken from the side of Christ and was pierced, has been washed in his blood, and is a part of him who is her source, her fount, and her headwaters. In the Song of Solomon, we find this image. We find the reflection of God, Christ, and his bride, the church. As so often has happened in the history of the bride's relationship to God, both in the Old Covenant and in the New Covenant, as we saw in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, there are periods when the church has been disconnected from Jesus. And he has to come looking for her. Early on in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, we found there was only one of the churches that really had unconditional praise from Jesus. The rest all had stuff that they had to deal with. One of those churches, Jesus said, 
Here I come and I stand at the door and I knock. Anyone who hears me opens the door and I will come in. That's taken straight out of the book of Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs. Because there we have that graphic little picture where the bride is waiting for her beloved and she's gone home and she's locked the door and she's had a bath and she's done her hair and she's got a dressing gown on and she hears her beloved knocking on the door. And she thinks to herself, I've had a bath, I've put my dressing gown on, I've done my nails, I'm on the couch, he can come back some other time. And that picture is taken by Jesus into Revelation and said, that's the way it often is with the church. We're off doing our thing. Jesus has been neglected. Jesus is ignored. Jesus' presence isn't wanted within the church. Why? Because sometimes it's a disturbing presence. We can get on with our life with the door shut and him in the outside and everything is fine. Maybe she went to put on the television or something. Well, she didn't have one back then, but there you are. You can imagine that that was the case. And then there's another, there's another vignette to the story in the Song of Songs where Mary Magdalene does what any believer would do. She goes early in the morning uh, on the day of resurrection to go, she goes looking for Jesus. You remember she finds, she's the first one to find the tomb and the tomb is empty and, and uh, she goes tells the other women that he's not there and then she goes off looking for him. So in the Song of Solomon, we find later on that the woman goes looking for the beloved. I sought him whom my soul loves. I I sought him about the city streets and in the broadways. And I've asked people in the street, have you seen him whom my soul loves? Mary Magdalene does the same at the resurrection of Jesus. She's looking through the garden. She's finding, uh, she's searching for her Lord. She can't find him anywhere. And she asks the first person she meets, Have you seen my Lord? Have you seen Jesus? Not even realizing that she's asking Jesus if he's seen Jesus. So that picture of the church as a, as a woman, as a bride, and God in Christ as her husband. But all of those misunderstandings of all gone now. Here is the bride, the divine bride with her divine lover. Now she's been perfected. Now, now there are no misunderstandings going on. I don't know if you watch Hallmark movies. I couldn't either admit or deny that I do, but I do know this, that there's a pattern to them. The pattern goes something like this, they fall in love. Somewhere in the last half hour, maybe even the last 20 minutes, there's a misunderstanding. They pull apart, and then, by some magic, it all ends when they come back together again and have a kiss, and at that, it's all over. The story's finished. Well, here is the story of the church. We meet the Lord Jesus. We love the Lord Jesus. Our sin pulls us apart from him. But here in this chapter, 
The beloved and the lover come together. This is the union of Christ with his people. And he takes her as his bride. Now John is caught up then in the spirit of revelation. She says, he says that he saw her coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. The Lord Jesus prayed that this would happen. In John 17, Jesus prayed, The glory you have given me, I have given them. John sees the church having the glory of God. Irradiated with the joy, the beauty of God. Its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. The most beautiful thing that you can imagine In chapter 4, we saw those very precious stones. And the one who had the appearing of those precious stones is the one who's on the throne. What does that tell you? It tells you that Jesus communicates his own life and glory to his church. They sit with him on his throne. They share the splendor that he has in his resurrected and glorified humanity. They've been transfigured. The glory transfigures her. She now has the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And Isaiah said, or heard these words being spoken, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. And here it comes true. The glory of God has come upon them. And the light illumines them. Paul wrote about the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But here it's the holy city, it's the church who is the illuminator, the the one that the the church is, is radiating, or should we say reflecting, but also radiating the glory of Christ. She's been glorified. So that's the heavenly bride. And then the second focus of attention, I think, is on the high wall. What's interesting here is that the whole city is infinitely extended. There there is no actual, we we don't really know the size of this new creation. All of creation is involved in the picture of the new heaven and the new earth. It's both huge but defined. Now we saw a foretaste of this back in chapter 7. John is told that there are 144,000 saints who've been elected and sealed. He turns to see the 144,000 and he says, I saw millions and millions and millions and millions of people who had been chosen and sealed. The millions of the church, the billions of the church, are in the mind of God a defined number in his mind, which only he knows. And that's important for us to remember. Well, the wall is a symbol of strength and security and safety. Andrew of Caesarea, one of the early church fathers, puts it like this, Christ is the great high wall of the church that protects those in the holy city. And you see the names of the 12 tribes of Israel that are written upon the gates, reminding us 
that in Christ there is this great unity. This city is therefore a symbol of unity. All the disparate parts of the church here are united together. All the things that divide us, race and temperament and and, uh, and so on. All of these distinctions that we make amongst people, rich, poor, black, white, uh, and so on. All of these distinctions that we make are demolished. We are all one in Christ Jesus. This city is the final and fulfilled form of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. The union of Christ and his people with nothing in between. And in addition to the walls, we're told that it had foundations, 12 foundations. And on them, on the foundations, the name of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. In other words, this holy church is not only Catholic, that is universal, but it is apostolic. Abraham, we're told in the book of Hebrews, looked for a city that had foundations. This is it. Jesus gave his fulfilled revelation to God, uh, has fullest revelation of God to these 12. The Apostle Paul writing in Ephesians 2 says, you are no longer strangers and aliens, you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In other words, the gospel is the apostolic gospel, even in heaven, even in eternity. We are told that we are to build on the foundation that's already been laid, Paul says in Corinthians, the gospel. And the true gospel is that which has been handed down to us by the holy apostles and which we have in Holy Scripture. Jesus prayed for us who would believe in him through their word. Through their word. So you notice what's unchanged here. What was true in history is true in eternity. The church, whether on earth or in glory, is the apostolic church. Jesus spoke about this in Matthew 19. Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. These apostles were anointed to bear witness to Jesus. He's the cornerstone. All of these foundations meet at the cornerstone. They all move towards him. They all point towards him. We have nothing to offer the world other than Jesus. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. I have nothing to offer you. No hope of eternal salvation. No joy that lasts eternally. There is no other source of joy or hope than in him. In our Jesus. No security but in him. He is the head of the corner. He holds the whole construction together. Our Jesus. And then you come to the measuring of the city. 
by this angel who has a rod of gold appropriate to angels, I suppose. And all of this picture imagery here comes from Ezekiel 40 to 48. The Old Testament scripture we learned last week is the blueprint for the New Testament. The measurements of the city are given in verse 16, those of the wall in verse 17. The city itself is described as a perfect cube, length, breadth, height, equal. Now that is biblical warrant. Back in Ezekiel, uh, the city and the temple are a perfect cube. In the Old Testament, the altar of burnt offering was a cube. The altar of incense was a cube. The high priest's breastplate was a cube. Ezekiel's new city and temple was a cube. In Solomon's temple, the Holy of Holies was a perfect cube. And as we now see it in Revelation 21, the entire new order, new Jerusalem, is a perfect cube. The Hagia Hagion, the Holy of Holies, in which God the Trinity dwells. The Venerable Bede says, here's the church supported by the length of faith, the breadth of love, and the height of hope, so that it can't be blown away with every wind of doctrine. The cubicle shape then is a sign of its perfection, its inherent harmony and order, As the psalmist said, a city that is bound firmly together. And the precious stones that I missed out, because there's one of them I can't pronounce properly in American. Uh, The precious stones are the bridegroom's gift to his bride. Well, that leaves us with one last thing. The holy place. John reaches his climax by telling us what he did not see. He tells us that he did not see a temple in the holy city. And he gives us the reason. He says, for this, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. He didn't see a physical temple because the whole place, the whole city, the whole of life in this New creation is a holy of holies, hence the cubic form. In 2 Corinthians 6, Paul wrote, For we are a temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. The divine presence there makes New Jerusalem a sanctuary. But a sanctuary, I want you to notice this, without any religion. Well, you see, that's a bit radical. Here we are in church, (laughs) and we're reading the Bible, and we're talking about the eternal state, and you're saying there's no religion. Yes, I am. I have the basis for saying that. What are the functions of religion? 
They're a good thing, by the way. I'm using the word religion not in the kind of way sometimes we use it and we say we're not religious, we're Christians, which is nonsense, by the way. Um, Religion has to do with the way in which we worship God today. Well, the way in which we worship God today is as those who can't see him. We can't see him. And so everything we do, we do by faith. And, and we do as kind of signs and seals. The sacraments are signs and seals that he's here. He's, it's almost like in, he puts these before us to remind him, I'm here. You know. when, when me and my cousins used to play hide and seek, they would hide, we would seek. And they would leave little marks that would raise our attention that they were there somewhere we just had to find out where they were God gives us the sacraments to remind us that he is here even though you can't see him and then there's the ways in which the word of God comes to us and convicts us from time to time that is a reminder that God is here but in New Jerusalem we're going to see we don't need religion in that sense It's also a reminder uh, that, or I should say, just let me add this caveat here. Nothing here is discouraging the building of magnificent churches in this age. These material buildings, like this one, need maintenance. And that's a reminder that they're not perfect. Their magnificence is meant to point us to better things to come. Better things to come. Jesus himself taught, you remember the Samaritan woman? He taught her that the divine presence surpasses any material structure. He said to her, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain, Gerizim, or in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And in the book of Revelation chapter 3, Jesus promises to the overcomer that they will be a pillar in the temple that is my God. So here we have the holy place. This holy place needs no material temple since God is there. And it needs no created light. And here light is being used both in the sense of radiant beauty but also that light that irradiates the place and the people and that interior light that goes on in your head when you understand things, that interior illumination that brings with it wisdom and knowledge and understanding. In the new heaven and the new earth, Thomas Aquinas says, all truth will be openly, perfectly revealed. Or in the language of the Apostle Paul, we will know, even also as we are known, God knows all about us. We will know everything there is to know in the presence of God. We will see God. Job believed that. In my flesh I will see God. Jesus promised that. The pure in heart shall see God. The Apostle Paul says, now we see in part, 
Then we shall know fully, even as we have been fully known. Now we see in a mirror dimly, then face to face. Isaiah said, The Lord will be your everlasting light. Your God will be your glory. The divine light of glory. The revelation of the attributes of God. Being able to view the very essence of God. The beatific vision. You see, where everything is holy, there are no sins to break fellowship with one another or with God. Where everything is holy, there's no temple, doors, for you to besiege with your prayers. Have you ever felt that when you've got something going on in your life and you're praying about it and you're serious about it and and you're not getting any sense that you're being heard, it's almost like you're battering at the doors of the heavenly temple in order to be heard. Where everything is holy, there's no need to batter on the doors of the temple. When we always live in the presence of God, then in his light we see light. The understanding will be there. And you find yourself in church this morning and things have been happening in your life as an individual, as a family, as a church family. You wonder what's going on. Then we will know. We will know in the illumination of that day. And by the light, the nations walk. The kings of earth will bring their glory into it. By this stage, the gospel has been preached to all the nations. By this stage, the Son of Man has come in his glory. He's caught up all of his people. We've all been transformed and changed and transmuted into the glory that he has in his human nature. And these people have come from every tribe and tongue and nation. The beauty of the nations belongs to the church of Jesus Christ. Even today. I mean, the center of gravity of Christianity today is in South America and even more so, the African continent. And here they are now in glory, pouring into this city, as it were. Remember, it's symbolic language. And they're bringing with them all their distinctive cultures. There are things in our culture that are not evil. There are things in our background, in our cultural mores, that are worth preserving even into eternity. We will bring those things with us into eternity to enrich the life of the new Jerusalem. The very best of our cultures will be brought in there. But one thing we won't be bringing with us are our abominations. Nothing unclean will ever enter it. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. We know only too well, by knowing our own hearts, what is detestable and false. It was the presence of these things that spoiled the Old Testament 
that is the old temple rather in the Old Testament and it was the presence of these things that has soiled the churches on earth but they won't be there they won't be there but will you be there Will you be there? Who's going to be there? Only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. You say, how can I know if my name is written there? If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord... If you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be there. Have you done that? Have you done that? Let's pray. Lord, we pray today that you would prepare us for that great day when all the things that make us creep and weary about this world will be gone. All the things that make us want to fight other people, whether verbally or even physically, will all be gone. On all of the racial hatred and abuse, people will be gone. When wars shall have ceased, and fighting will be gone. Oh Lord, we pray that in the meantime in our journey you would keep us with our focus and our gaze on that great city of God, the bride of the Lamb. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.